All right, uh, I'm going to waste no time because we've already lost some time. Um, and so I'm going to get started. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 26 to 31. And um, this is the Apostle Paul, again, writing to uh, the Corinthian believers. And in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of God. Uh, when I was in third grade, uh, and it's amazing that I actually still remember this, um, I had befriended a girl uh, whose name was Heavenly. And in retrospect, I realized that her name, or she really did not live up to her namesake. Um, but I had, here's, here's the reason why, okay? But I had, I had befriended Heavenly because she had moved from another city. Uh, she, ha- she knew no one. She was really shy. Uh, she was the new kid in our class. And this is where my, my memory gets a little fuzzy, but somehow uh, we became friends. And, um, uh, you know, she wasn't like my third grade crush or anything, uh, but she just seemed lonely. So uh, during lunch, uh, I decided to sit next, sit next to her. Uh, she didn't have any friends. And so my friends and I welcomed her and invited her to play with us at the playground together. And during class, I would, you know, I would share my NBA pencils with her and stuff. And we all ate lunch together. It was very fun. And then one day after class, maybe a, a year after uh, the school year had started, uh, she pulled me aside and, and told me that she wanted to try something out. Uh, she said that she wanted to still be friends, but pretend that we were enemies. Um, uh, so what she meant was, you know, we'll talk to each other in, in, in private, but in public, you know, we pretended that we weren't friends. And so I was young. And so, I, you know, I, it didn't occur to me that she pretty much was saying that she didn't want to be my friend. So I was like, okay, like, this sounds like a fun game. Um, and then the following day, she started making fun of me and calling me names and, um, and during recess, I saw her with a new group of uh, with kids, and our eyes had met, and she glared at me, and and walked away with her new friends. And I was like, what the heck? That's like so shady. Um, you know, she was the new kid in town. She had no friends. Uh, she was shy. We welcomed her into our friend group, and now she was too embarrassed to hang out with us now that she had a new group of friends. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, it's because Heavenly, who was not so heavenly, um, had forgotten where she had come from. Uh, she had forgotten that she was a nobody from a different city. And she might have been a somebody from her own city, but here she was a nobody with no social clout, having made, you know, having, and having made some new friends acted if she now was somebody. And this is exactly what was occurring in the Corinthian church. If this is your, uh, your first time joining us, welcome. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm your pastor. Um, and, uh, but if this is not your first time, uh, welcome again. But if you need to refresh on what's going on, uh, some friends of the Apostle Paul had, had t- told Paul uh, that there were some problems occurring in the Corinthian church. Uh, and, and one of the main problems was that the Corinthians were forming popularity groups. Uh, some, were fo- were, some were saying that I follow you know, the, the BTS crew, or some were you know, saying that I follow the jocks. Uh, some were saying that I follow the Bible nerds. Some were saying that I follow the pastor's kids. And these popularity groups were so divisive that it was causing the church itself to tear apart. 
And beginning with last week's passage, Paul began an intricate argument to address the divisions occurring in the church. And the first line of reasoning that Paul develops is that the reason why there are divisions in the church is because we have all misunderstood expectations of how God acts and the kinds of people God seems to value and respect. And what he exposed in our hearts last week is that we want a triumphal God who values what the world values. We want a God who values the prestigious and the powerful. We want a God who blesses the beautiful and the glamorous. We want a God who exalts the smart and the gifted because that's what we desire and aspire to be. And so if we are like that, then God, of course, will value, bless, and exalt us. And if God values, blesses, and exalts us, then who can possibly be against us? What the Apostle Paul exposed in our hearts is that we want a God who wins by winning, not by losing. A God who wins by crushing others, not by being crushed for others. And the problem is that we no longer want the God of the Bible, but really the God of our own creation. But last week, we saw that the God of the universe overturns our expectations by devaluing what we value. And by valuing what we devalue. Through the great scandal of the cross, if you'll remember, God showed us that he values precisely the opposite of what the world values. What the, what the world calls good and, and precious, God calls evil and fleeting. What the world calls evil and stupid, God calls good and praiseworthy. When the world says that humility and being last are useless, when the world says that the only way up is by going up, God says that the only way up is actually the way down. And so as people centered on the crucified Messiah and as a cruciform family, we deny and even oppose the cross of Jesus and the God who saved us if we base who we hang out on a Friday night and Sunday mornings on the basis of who we like or the appearance of others and the status of other people. And tonight's passage takes us through the second line of reasoning. So the first reason why we can't choose community on the basis of status and appearance, is because of how it contradicts the foolish nature of the cross. And the second reason why we can't choose community on the basis of status and appearance is because of how it contradicts the foolish nature of the community that God saved. If if the cross of Jesus is foolish to the world, then it means that the people whom whom Jesus saves are also foolish to the world. What the church of God in Corinth failed to realize was that among the people that God chose, God chose mainly nobodies. Divisions exist because, like heavenly, we have forgotten that we were nobodies. What will tear this high school group apart isn't the differences among this group, but the way in which we use differences of upbringing or Bible knowledge or how long you've grown up at Lighthouse to look down on others and to think that we're better. The disunity occurring in the church simply arose out of a forgetfulness of the kind of people God saved. So the way that Paul guards us from this kind of forgetfulness is by directing our attention to three things that he wants us to remember. So the key idea is that a people centered on Messiah must remember who they were, who they are, and must never forget the one who did it all. Um, actually, can someone grab me some tissue in the back over there? Sorry. I'm like all like sniffling. I'm recovering from a cold. I'm sorry. So, um, thank you. 
So I hope I don't like, you know, like germify all you guys and get you guys sick because I know, but you know, <laughs> Seth, this is his cross to bear, you know? So, <laughs> so, oh shoot, my nose is bleeding. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. All right. That explains why it was like all simply. Okay. Sorry. Don't look at this. Okay. Just, oh, this is like, this is like God showing the foolish, the foolish nature of the church right here. Okay. All right. This is all going to be recorded. So, hello world. Okay. I will do that when I'm done. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to hold it like this. Okay. Should be fine. Okay. Point number one. Um, we must remember who we are. We must remember who we are. Um, take a look at verses 26 to 28. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to, thank you, uh, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. This is the, the most backhanded compliment that Paul is giving to the Corinthian church. In fact, I, I can't really tell if it's you know a subtle roast or if it's a backhanded compliment. But either way, Paul is saying that by and large, the people whom God has chosen to save are precisely the foolish and the weak in the world, like this guy right here. When, when Paul tells them to consider their calling, Paul is urging them to remember who they were before God saved them. And he says that not many of them were wise or, or powerful or of noble birth, which implies that some were obviously wise, influential, and, had, and did come from well-known families. And it obviously meant that God's grace can reach both the privileged and the un- underprivileged. But the point that Paul is making here is that being smart influential or or coming from a good family gives you no advantage over others precisely because these kinds of people are not the majority of people whom God has saved. In fact, if you take a look at verse 27, the word for chose that Paul uses occurs only one other time in his writings. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, where he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Uh, last month, I think in our, our first or second message in First Corinthians, I had referenced a quote from uh, Martin Luther, uh, who said that the love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. But the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And the illustration that I had used to explain what this quote meant was that when I wanted to date Megan, it was because there were certain qualities and uh, traits that were intrinsic to her that grabbed my attention, that, that, that made me muster up my courage to ask her out and to eventually to ask for her hand in marriage. And the point that Martin Luther was trying to make is that human love is reactive. Human love sees something that it likes and is immediately drawn towards it. But God's love is not like human love. God's love is not reactive, but creative. God set his affection and love upon us despite seeing no intrinsic goodness or beauty. And I think sometimes we forget that. So many of us think that God loved us precisely because we were obedient or because we have memorized our Bibles or because we are mature or because we sin less than other people or because we are pastor's kids or whatever. And this is why Paul's words here are so relevant. Because if God really did accept people on the basis of intellect or influence or background, then it really does mean that God 
is the worst kind of snob there is, who is impressed by the same things that the world is impressed by. But according to Paul, this is emphatically what God is not like. God does not care about what we care about because God, time and time again, uses and chooses the lamest and most foolish things. And if you want proof, look no further than the cross of Jesus. If you think about it, Jesus was a nobody. The prophet Isaiah said that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The cross itself was foolish because a despicable torturing device is what saved God's people. And if the cross is foolish, it means that the people that the cross rescues is also foolish. If you want proof that God does not choose the well-esteemed or the influential or the wise, look no further than the people in this room. You know, when I first met Seth, when he was in sixth grade, I knew that, I knew that this kid right here was instant sermon illustration material, okay? And I love him, okay? I, I, okay, never mind Seth, okay? I knew, I knew most of you, okay? When you guys were kids, before you guys were even in this youth group, and you guys were all derpy fools and nobodies. And the reason why I have us all sitting like this is because there are a couple photos that I want to show you guys, just to show you how foolish. Yes, I, I, I will spare you guys. I'll show you just a few, okay? What is this? Oh, okay, that's mine. <laughs> I was like, where are you guys eyeing at? Um, okay, this is, okay, Davis right here. This is sixth grade. Okay, Davis. Where's Pierce? Look at this kid. This kid. Okay, look at Caleb, okay? Look at this guy right here. That kid, okay? Look at, okay, look at Taylor and Mia right here. Okay, Zoe's not even here. Sammy. Um, Disneyland. Okay, look at Jared, okay? When I, okay, when I saw this, I was like, dude, look at this kid. Here's another. Okay, this is David. David Uaha, right here. All right? Okay, where is David? Oh my God, no. Mia, right here. One last one, one last one, okay? Look at Taylor. And Rachel. I love this one, Rachel. <laughs> okay, I'll spare you guys, I'll spare you guys, okay? The reason why I wanted to show this photo is because we are all nobodies. We are nobodies, all right? Lest you forget, and lest you get puffed up in who you are now, look at who you were just two years ago. You guys were nobodies. Take a look again at verses 27 to 28, and notice the kinds of people God chooses. Notice how he says that he chooses what is foolish. He chooses what is weak, what is low, what is despised. You know, I remember uh, in elementary school PE, uh, when we would all have to play dodgeball, and I hated it because, you know, our PE teachers would elect two team captains. And the team captains would always choose the strongest and the fastest. And I was definitely not the strongest nor the fastest. I was the shortest and the slowest. And we would all groan when the team captain chooses the loser. But God is the team captain who loves to choose the bottom of the barrel. The slowest, the, the, the weakest, the lamest. The fundamental reason why there are not more hotshots in the church today is because God has preferentially chosen the nobodies. Uh, back when uh, Jeremy Lin was first breaking out as an NBA player, and actually, by the way, Jeremy Lin and I went to the same home church, but Jeremy Lin was like the Asian mom's dream, okay? Uh, he was smart, 
He went to Harvard. He was athletic. He was successful. He was rich. But best of all, he was a Christian. It was every mom's, every Asian mom's dream for their son or their daughter to be a successful, a smart, a wealthy, a well-adjusted Christian. It was a win-win-win theology. And again, the fact that Paul said that not many of them were wise or powerful or of noble birth implies that God's grace can reach both the unprivileged and privileged. But what Paul is saying here is that our value system is messed up if those are the things that we aspire to be. Because God, by and large, does not choose these people. He has not chosen these people. There's no such thing as a cool Christian because the values of being cool and the values of being a Christian are almost diametrically opposed. Where our classmates parade around the cool, God chooses the nobody. Where our student body elects the intellectual, God chooses the simple. Where our friends choose the likable, God chooses the unlikable. God delights to choose the people that no one else wants to choose. And if you were to tell your non-Christian friends that God was going to bring about his rescue mission of the world through this ragtag group right here, guess, I mean, just imagine what your friends would say. Like, good luck, you know? Who would choose Jesus, a man despised and rejected by men, to save the world? Who would use the cross as the instrument to save sinners? Who would choose the church full of arrogant and loveless haters to carry the message of the cross? Who would have thought that God used a murderer to be the most prolific evangelist of Jesus in the Roman Empire? Who would have thought that God would use a bunch of kids like these to carry the message of the cross to their own schools and families? The point that Paul is making here is that the church is a group of nobodies that God called out for no other reason than because he simply wanted to. And the problem infecting the Corinthian church was that a church of nobodies had forgotten that they were nobodies and were trying to be something that they were not. A tendency that all of us have is the tendency to look down on others. If you are a ninth grader, you have a proclivity to look down on the eighth graders. If you are a tenth grader, you have a proclivity to look down on the ninth graders. If you are a junior, you have a tendency to look down on the ninth and tenth graders. It's a pecking order. For people who have grown up in the church, you have a proclivity to exclude and even to look down on others who haven't grown up in the church. For people who have been Christians for a longer time, you have a tendency to look down on younger and more immature Christians. And the greatest irony is that all of you are not that far removed from immaturity. I am certain that we all have an ungracious spirit and tendency to find something to look down on others for. Whether it's the, pe- the way that people dress or how people act or kind of people music, uh, what kind of music people listen to. But the problem is that we do all of this without realizing that we were all and still are in the same boat. And we're all in need of the same mercy. What the cross of Jesus does is that it not only unites different people together, both great and small, but it also at the same time levels different people and puts them all on the same playing field. And what Paul exposes in our hearts is the hypocritical and inconsistent attitude that we are better than others when we really aren't. And I think a fundamental reason 
why this hypocrisy and inconsistency exists is because we really don't believe that we are just as undeserving as the next person. Like, I think in theory, we believe that everyone is undeserving, but none of us really think that or live that out in practice. Because doing so would actually mean that all of your brilliance, all of your honors classes, all, all of the community service hours that you accumulate, all the social influence that you have contributes no more to your salvation than your own sin. And I think that frightens some of you. But this is precisely why God frequently chooses and pursues the lowest common denominator. Take a look at verse 29. It is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God frequently uses the weak instead of the strong because the weak have no natural reason to boast in themselves. It's so that no one in this room can say, I was chosen by God because I go to Lighthouse Community Church or because I am a seven-point, not a five-point, but a seven-point Calvinist or because I am the son of Pastor Kim or because I am on student council or whatever, even though all those things are great things. You are not in because you are great. You are in simply because God loved you. And we gather around every Friday night and every Sunday morning to celebrate God's salvation over human failure and human weakness. If you want to celebrate human greatness, go watch like a football game or something. Don't come to church to do that because we come to church to witness God's power through a crucified Messiah in human failure. One commentator writes that God has deliberately chosen the foolish things of the world, the cross and the Corinthian believers, so as to remove forever from every human creature any possible grounds on their part of standing in the divine presence with something in their hands. Whether you are strong or weak, rich or poor, somebody or nobody, it does not matter. There is no mountain to climb There is no approval rating that you must win. There is no spirituality that you must achieve. There is only one requirement to come to the cross. The one requirement is to get over yourself. Get over your self-importance and come to the end of yourself. By choosing the lowly Christians and by choosing a bunch of fools like us, God has ruled out every imaginable human way of gaining his favor. So that like the hymn, all that we can say is nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And it is through this self-realization that unity can actually be mended. When we realize that we are no better and no worse than the person sitting next to us. A people centered on Messiah, remember who they were. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Second point is that we must remember who we are. So the first point is we must remember who we were. And the second point is that we must remember who we are. Look at, take a look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And this is what the wisdom of God does. It turns an unwise people wise, an unlovable people lovable, an unworthy people worthy, an unrighteous people righteous. And I think what Paul is saying here will either shock some of you or upset some of you. Here is the shocking part. It comes as a shocking, as a shock for some, for some people because it, mean, it actually does mean that the weak 
the foolish, the lowly, simply by faith in Jesus, the Messiah, are declared righteous. They are set apart and set free from the slavery of sin. That's, that's like unbelievable for the lowly and the weak and the despised. In other words, while you were not wise according to the world, you are now wise and counted righteous in Messiah. While you were not of noble birth according to the world, you are now called out to be a royal son and daughter of God in the world. While you were not influential according to the world, you are now freed to be God's redemptive influence in the world. A people who were nobodies are now somebodies, of course, not in the eyes of the world, not even the eyes of the people in this church, but in the eyes of God. And the reason why it's shocking is because this is a status that has been simply given and conferred to people who simply believe in Jesus. A status that that has been given to people who actually deserve the opposite, which is what makes this status so shocking because this status... That this is a status that remains on the people of God despite their present and future sins. I, I cannot overstate that the Corinthian church was a community riddled with problems and sins so bad that it makes us wonder if they really were Christians. This was, as I mentioned before, a, a church that has gone wild. And yet, the fact that they are still And Jesus, the Messiah, tells us how meritless and how undeserving the grace of God is. And so let me just draw some implications for us. What does this mean then? The first is that we need to be gracious. We need to be gracious. Despite the sinfulness and propensity of the Corinthians to look down and to form popularity groups within the church, the very fact that Paul still calls them Christians tells us that the worst Christians that we know are, at worst, still Christians. Still sinners, saved by grace. They might still be immature, they might still be divisive, they might still be judgmental, they might still love status and and, and influence. And while all of these things are pretty bad, even still, they are still the people whom God chose and set his affection upon which means that we need to be gracious to even the worst of Christians. Any failure to be gracious to the failings and sins of others is to perpetuate the attitude that God only loves those who deserve to be loved. And this doesn't mean that we sweep their sins under the rug. This doesn't mean that we ignore the problems, but it does mean that we act contrary to what they deserve. We show kindness and love And we still pursue them even in the face of wrong. But here's another reason why it's so dangerous to be ungracious. If you are ungracious, you put yourself in danger of proving that the grace and love of God never really reached down to your heart and changed your life. Because if the grace of God really did touch and change your life, you would be the first to admit that If it weren't for the grace of God, you would be in the same boat. Who you are in Messiah must never be disconnected from who you were apart from Messiah. If you are unable to be gracious or generous, 
Have you ever thought about reflecting on how God has been gracious and kind to you? Secondly, we need to be patient. And this is, I think, more for the staff, but also applicable to the students as well. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul charges the Thessalonians, a model Christian community, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. And so maybe you know some Christians who are blatantly crossing worldly boundaries, always caught up with valuing what the world values. Maybe you know some Christians who are tempted to just give up and to succumb to the culture. And then maybe you know some Christians who just need constant reminders and constant hand-holding. But at the end of verse 14, Paul says that whether they are unruly or faint-hearted or, or weak, he says at the end of verse 14, he says, be patient with them all. What kind of people would you say the Corinthians were? The Corinthian church was definitely the unruly bunch. But applying his own application to the Corinthians, he was patient with them in their unruliness. And so patience here means knowing that when you are charged by God to care for your younger spiritual siblings, it means that they will inevitably test you. Patience means that knowing that the Christian life is a slow and lifelong marathon of repentance and transformation, meaning that we do not become unruly or prone to giving up ourselves when others aren't changing at the rate that we want them to. Patience means that there are no silver bullet solutions and that there are no one-and-done confrontations because one-and-done confrontations rarely solve problems. And patience means that we are in it for the long haul, in the good, but especially in the bad. It's the reason why patience is the first to crack the list of what love is. Love is patient. And so that's what's shocking. The shocking part is that when the community of God isn't acting like Christians, it doesn't change the fact that they are still in Jesus the Messiah. Here's the upsetting part. What's also upsetting and even disturbing about this verse is that it means that the worst of people by simple faith and trust in Jesus, can be declared righteous. Children of God, owing their entire lives and allegiance to the God who saved them. Why is this so upsetting and so disturbing? Well, if I gave you 10 seconds to jot down in your notes people who do not deserve God's grace, I don't think it would be hard for us to write down a name or two or three or 10. I don't think we understand how scandalous the message of Jesus is. The reason why this verse is so upsetting is because the hypothetical people that you jotted down in your notes are probably the same kind of people God loves to save. You see, I think we have in our minds a group of people that we like and a group of people that we hate. And we think that God loves the people that we love and hates all the same people that we hate. And it upsets us because it's some, because sometimes it's the people that we hate the most that God, by his grace, loves the most. I think none of us have any problems believing that verse 30 is true for us. But I'm pretty confident that I can find more than a few people in this room who have problems believing that verse 30 is also true for others. And it's upsetting because some of us have grown up all of our lives believing that it is really our upbringing that makes us better than others. Some of us maybe have grown up all our lives working harder than anyone else. Some of us have grown up loving that we are more gifted or smarter or godlier godlier than other people. But when we hear that none of that counts before God, 
That makes our blood boil. Why? It's because at the end of the day, what's truly at the heart of the matter is that we are still boasting in ourselves. Further highlighting our need for redemption. Take a look at, take a look back at verse 30 again. Uh, actually, I just want to go to the end because I don't want to read it again. Uh, redemption, okay? <laughs> All right. This is the only time, this is the only time that Paul uses the word redemption in 1 Corinthians. And when it occurs only once here in 1 Corinthians, you have to ask why. When Paul uses the word redemption, he is reminding the Corinthians to recall how the people of Israel were sold into slavery in Egypt. And how through the Exodus event, through the the parting of the Red Sea, God through Moses bought and led Israel out of slavery. Now why does Paul evoke imagery of an event that occurred 4,000 years prior to the Corinthians? Well, it's because Paul sees the Corinthians as a people still enslaved. Did you catch that? Still enslaved to the value system of the world. And the cultural values seeping into the Corinthian church was tearing them apart. You see, if you, if you compare yourself to others, you will, you will always find someone who is worse than you, but you will always find someone who is also better than you. You will either feel good that you're better than others, or you will either feel crushed that there are others better than you. And if you think that all of life and all of your relationships with other, with other people is a comparison game with them, then you will be blinded to your greatest need. You see, your greatest need isn't to be better. Your greatest need is redemption. Because the more you compare yourself to others, the more you place yourself further and further away from the, from the reach of God's mercy. Isn't that the reason why Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God? Which is why Paul says that Jesus is our redemption. Because in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God, the greatest somebody, became a nobody and substituted himself as the Passover sacrifice for sinful nobodies so that they can be some somebodies, not according to the world, but according to God, dying on a foolish cross, shattering and freeing you from the suffocating hold of self-importance and self-boasting and canceling the record of your sin. If you want to know what God thinks about the world and what the world values, look at the cross. The, the, the greatest redemptive event in history and the greatest reversal of what we think is truly important. What God rescues us from is our sin and our selfish and enslaving proclivity to judge others and ourselves according to the world's standards. And that's all by grace. A people centered on Messiah remembers who they are. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, namely righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I'm going to close here with the last point, and I'm sorry I'm running a little bit behind time. Some theatrics going on with my nose. (laughs) Point three, we must never forget the one who did it all. We must never forget the one who did it all. Take a look finally at verse 31. So that, as it is written, Let the one who boasts, 
boast in the Lord. Now, the word for boast here is the word kalkaomai, which means to glory or to pride yourself over. And so, beloved, I want to ask you guys a question. What are the things that you take pride in and glory in? Maybe it really is all the friends that you have on social media. Maybe it's the recognition that you get from your teachers and classmates. Maybe it's the musical achievements and the awards that you get and hang on your mantle. Asian parents love doing that. Like I remember going to my friends' houses and they would have all their siblings and parents' and and grandparents' diplomas and degrees plastered on their walls. All of our lives, we've been told by our parents, our teachers, and our friends to glory in our achievements and not in our failures. Just a couple weeks ago, I was uh, I was watching this movie called Up in the Air, and it's no longer on Netflix, uh, which is sad because I just watched it for a day and they removed it. And it's a, it's a movie about a guy uh, played by George Clooney who wants to become the seventh and the youngest person to to earn 10 million frequent frequent flyer miles with American Airlines, which is crazy. Uh, and and by the way, sorry to spoil the ending. By the end of the movie, uh, he he does, only to realize that once he reached the top. There's nothing there. All of the miles that he had hoisted and built his life upon meant nothing more than a pat on the back and an exclusive platinum card. All the miles that he had spent his life chasing after couldn't prop up his life and wasn't enough to justify his existence. But here in this verse, glorying and boasting takes on a new form and a new focus. Because in Jesus, the Messiah, Paul sees him as the new Adam, restarting the whole human race over again. People rich and poor, wise and foolish, male and female, weak and strong, all saved together, not because of their merits or even lack of merit, but because of grace. And he is inviting you into a new way of life, a new way of being human. And in this invitation, he wants us to make a choice. And in this choice, you can remain shackled to hopelessly chasing after the fleeting values of this world. Or you can follow Jesus into a life of freedom and joy. Where the value of your life is no longer defined by what you can do or what others think of you or who your friends are, but by what God and Jesus has already done for you. And you know, it's kind of funny that we talk about how following Jesus is a hard choice, almost choosing different flavors from Baskin Robbins. Like, should I follow Jesus? Should I not? And while I don't want to minimize the real difficulty of following Jesus, I think we're really actually missing the big picture here. The big picture is that we really blew it. We really are nobodies. We we are rebels against God. We are nobodies deserving nothing but hell. And yet in the foolishness of God and at great cost to himself, God came to die on a cross for nobodies. Switching places with us, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we can be reconciled back to God and, and with each other. That's the reality. And when that is the reality, how can we not follow Jesus then? into a life of freedom and joy. That is our mission in life. We are a bunch of nobodies who exist to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And since we are nobodies, we can take on a new posture in the world. A posture of self-forgetfulness 
and complete surrender to the God who has done it all. You see, for the Christian, boasting in God is not a surrender of joy, but the foundation of it. Because Jesus is a solid rock upon which we stand, and everything else is sinking sand. A people centered on Messiah must remember who they were. They must remember who they are. But they must never forget the one who did it all. Let's pray. God, why would you save us? I, I, I really don't get it. It is amazing that you would save rebels like us. And yet you have, and you have done so through the greatest sacrifice and the greatest irony of all. You substituted yourself for us. And for this, we thank you. And we do pray that you would help us to live a life of complete surrender, a life of self-forgetfulness, because you have done it. We thank you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed, and I am sorry that we were.